Let's open our Bibles this morning to James chapter 4. That's the first place we're going to be. We certainly will be in a few others in particular. And uh, I have to tell you that some of the things are uh, um, direct and some of the language that is used, especially in our passage in Ezekiel, is direct. I will attempt to uh, uh, soften it somewhat so it's appropriate for our our, uh, audience here. But uh, keep in mind the topic that we're dealing with, and so certain words are used there, especially as we look at the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. So let me pray as we start. Heavenly Father, come upon us with your Holy Spirit for understanding, that our eyes would be open to your word, that we would see it and it would penetrate our hearts and our minds and fill us so that we would live it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And we'll be in James 4 in just, just a moment. And uh, just to reiterate, I remind you that Sunday mornings we are dealing with the bedrock issues of marriage, uh, the theological basis and significance of marriage, the purpose of marriage as instituted and ordained by God, the mirroring significance of marriage to God's relationship and with his people and Christ's relationship with the church and the nuts and bolts of the day-to-day things, how we communicate, how we understand each other, that's more in the evening with the love and respect. So here in our present setting, we're looking at the issues that underlay and form the foundation of marriage as God intended it to be. And there's the most important phrase, as God intended it to be. Uh, Unfortunately, there is this thing that's called sin, Uh, that has disrupted this perfect creation and continues to um, uh, get in the midst of of what God intended and to stir the pot and mess things up. But we must hold to God's intention as it is found in the Holy Word, not man's corruption as it is found in Hollywood, as Dan put it so well last week. And uh, he laid a great foundation for us last week. We would have loved to spend three or four more weeks in the first chapters of Genesis, but um, we only have six weeks for this, so we have to move on and, and cover these, uh, the material. Everything that we um, have gathered as resource material will be available at the, uh, at the end of this series in the library. Uh, there are 12 to 15 uh, really good resources that we have. If you'd like to uh, dig deeper on a particular topic, whether it's the theological end of it, whether it's the practical end of it, uh, all those books will be available to you uh, once we're finished. So today we're going to look at the theological understanding of marriage in the Old Testament uh, as it is related to God's relationship with Israel. And the first thing that we need to understand is that marriage is theology. Now, uh, some of you are going, oh, Randy Randy thinks everything is theology. Um, Well, yeah, I kind of do, kind of do. But marriage is theology because it mirrors and gives a taste of something that is eternal and beyond us. Okay, We don't have marriage just because there are men and women. We have marriage because it mirrors and gives us a taste of that relationship of our Heavenly Father and His people in the Old Testament and of Christ and His bride in the New Testament. I mean, this is a picture of what is eternal and what the Lord has 
actually in salvation. It points to the love the Lord has for his people Israel, his faithfulness, and their unfaithfulness. Okay, And we're going to see this in that relationship and his call upon our lives as believers to hold fast to the things that he tells us and to walk in his ways in obedience. Secondly, it's theology because as we're going to see today, adultery and idolatry are very closely linked in the Old Testament. In fact, the words are used interchangeably and both betray, um, both represent the betrayal and the punishment that was for each one. The it was a death penalty for each one in the Old Testament, and we're going to understand why that was so important. So we find throughout Scripture that adultery is a sin so grievous that the Lord uses it as a metaphor for what happens when his people love other gods, when his people abandon him and go and seek after other gods. We see this in Exodus, and we see this in Hosea, just as an example. Now, we may be tempted to think that, well, I'm not guilty of spiritual idolatry. Uh, I mean, I haven't abandoned Christ. I don't have a little uh, altar with idols set up in my prayer room at home. And, and, you know, I'm not out worshiping other gods. Mm, That's why we're in James chapter 4. James chapter 4, look at verse 4. He says, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James shows us that that we can commit spiritual adultery even if we're not deliberately following following other gods. There's no sign to James' audience that they were in uh, great uh, sexual sin. There's no sign that they were worshiping idols, but it was worse than that plain sin in in plain sight. It was much more subtle what they were doing. What was their adulterous activity? Friendship with the world. Friendship with the world, really? Who does that make adulterers then? Pretty much all of us, unfortunately, because we all have a friendship with the world that is probably in relationship to our friendship with Christ is probably too close because the church as a whole looks a lot like the world in a lot of ways and not so much like Christ wants us to look. I mean, it's just a fact of, of, of where we are as people. And James labels his, his, to his audience, he says, you're adulteresses. You're chasing after other gods, and the other god is the world. The world in this context is being used as a designation for a system of values, uh, loves, deeds that are wholly at odds with what God desires from his people. 1 John says, do not love the world, the things of the world, anyone who loves the world. The love of the Father is not in him. Whoever loves the world more than God is creating, committing adultery, and idolatry because God is our heavenly father the only God Christ is the husband of the church these things are inseparable the audience here was betraying Christ was following after the world was embracing the things of how the world treated others not how Christ said we are were to treat one another 
They were worrying about socioeconomic distinctions. They were making sure when the rich people came, they got the good seats, and the poor people were like, you know, just hanging in the back. They were embracing ungodly speech and jealousy and selfish ambition, the ways of the world. They were committing adultery before the Lord. So let's remember, we go back to the Old Testament. Now I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. Wow. I turned right to it. Yeah. <laughs> Ezekiel chapter 16. And, and, and this, this, this will be difficult for us. I want you to be ready for it. It's going to be difficult because it's going to, it's going to affect us. And, and, and this is a, a beautiful picture and a terrible picture at the same time. But as you're turning there, let's remember that it was God who went out and sought for himself a people. He, he, as the husband, went out and found himself a wife, so to speak, theologically speaking, in the Old Testament. He chose a people for himself. They did not come after him. They did not seek him out. And, and that first one that started, we go back to Abram. And Abram was just doing his thing and living his life. And the Lord said, Abram, I have chosen you, and I will make of you a great people like the what? stars in the skies, the sand on the shore. And I'm going to read a few passages from Genesis that, that helps us understand. Now listen to how God pledges himself to Abraham and his descendants. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said... To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. This is, these are God's promises to Abram and now and to his offspring, and now a couple more passages. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You're going to be my possession. My, if we go to Lord of the Rings, my precious thing, okay? That's what he's saying. You are my, and it's this love that the Lord has as a husband has for his wife. Again, Deuteronomy, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, for you have separated them from all the peoples of the earth as your inheritance, as you spoke through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers forth from Egypt, O Lord God. And the last little verse, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. Don't you understand the depth of that phrase, for his own possession? 
Out of all the people, Israel was not the best. They were not the brightest. They were not the fanciest. They were not already in power. Here is Abram, and he said, you are going to be mine. And I'm going to bless you and will cause you, therefore, to be a blessing to who? Everybody else. Everybody else. You are my people. The Lord, the superior, pledges his fidelity to the inferior, to man. What did man do? Great. And then he went and cheated. Again and again and again. This takes us to Ezekiel. Ezekiel tells us of God's love for his people and how they treated him in return. Now, remember, we're talking about the theological significance of marriage and why it is so important. It is so important because God has ordained it this way and he has demonstrated what it should be like in his fidelity and faithfulness to his unfaithful people. Marriage is the most loving union that a man and a woman can experience. So it is a perfect metaphor for this relationship God has chosen to have with his people. Remember, it is God who has chosen to have this relationship with his people. But the people of Israel were unfaithful to a husband who had pledged to care for them. And the prophet stresses the extent of Israel's betrayal To the Lord by showing how much the Lord did for his people, but they still rejected him. He starts with a focus on the people's beginning, on on the people of Israel and how they started, verses 1, 2, and 3. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite, and your father was an Amorite, and your mother was a Hittite. There are a bunch of ites there, and what's the common bond? They were all pagans. Okay, There wasn't somebody who was already there, who was already seeking after God. The Lord comes and finds them in their paganness and takes out this nation and commits himself to them. Abraham had to be rescued from idolatry. He had to be pulled out of that. And thus the people were originally helpless, were originally hopeless. And he illustrates that with the illustration of a baby girl who has been abandoned at birth. Verse 4, as for your birth... On the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. Now, culturally, we have to understand what this means. If... if If my wife and I gave birth to a baby girl and we didn't want her, we would just throw her out. Just throw her outside. And what would happen is we wouldn't wouldn't cut the cord. We we wouldn't um, uh, wash her. We wouldn't rub her with salt. We wouldn't put clothes on her at all. Throw her out in the street naked as an infant. Helpless. Child has only moments to live. What would happen is if somebody wanted to adopt that girl... 
They would come and they would lay their hands on that girl unwashed, not rubbed in salt, unclothed, and go live. And then they would adopt that child. Verse 6. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. I said to you, live while you were in your blood. The Lord came along and saw Israel abandoned by the rest of the world and said, live and you are mine. And I'm going to take you. I'm going to adopt you. You have no reason to think that you deserve anything. In fact, you don't deserve anything. You were left to die. And the Lord comes to this nation and says, you are mine. And he loves them. But God's love did not end there. He switches this this metaphor uh, from what he's using from an adoptive father to a loving husband. Look at verse 7 and following. I made you numerous like the plants of the field. Then you grew up, you became tall, and you reached the age of fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you or covered you with my cloak, and and I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord." Then I bathed you with water, I washed off the blood, I anointed you with oil, I clothed you with embroidered cloth, I put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet, and I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus You were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Remember, this is the child. Israel is the child who was abandoned, who was left to die moments from death, and the Lord came along and said, live, and adopted her as a daughter. Now she is older, and he comes along and says, Now you're no longer a daughter. Now you will be my wife. You will be my own possession. And he begins to put the jewelry of grace upon her and clothing her in these beautiful things. And and there is there's this it's just beyond imagine that this nation who was nothing could suddenly be considered the husband the wife of the Lord God. And he would care for her in that fashion. Then Verse 14, then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect. Why? Because of my splendor, the Lord says, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Israel was the beautiful wife. Why? Because her husband had made her beautiful, because he had bestowed upon her the graces that can only come from our Heavenly Father. This was the work of the Lord. Yet, God knowingly had chosen and received a nation who would be adulterous. He knew that they would not be faithful. Look at verse 15. That terrible word, but... Let's go back just a little bit. For it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord. But 
you trusted in your beauty and you played the harlot because of your fame and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. Israel had this one-to-one relationship with the Lord. It was beautiful. It was glorious. And all of a sudden they started to go, but look at that God over there. That's, that's a good-looking God, okay? I mean, look what they're doing. They're, they're, they're sacrificing their children. Maybe we should sacrifice our children to this God over here. And what they did is they began to play the harlot. They began to worship other gods and turn their back on the one who had done so much for them. In fact, they say in Jeremiah chapter 2, Uh, Israel cries out, but it's no use. I love foreign gods. I must go after them. Their heart was so set on the pursuit of someone else beyond their husband that they purposely pursued it. And they were not selective about who they ran around with behind God's back, so to speak. They were willing to take anybody but the husband who had pledged themselves to them in all love and honor and respect And they said, you know what? We'd rather have somebody else than the one who has committed themselves to us. So they began to make graven images out of gold and sacrificing their children to. Verse 16, and you took some of your clothes, made for yourself high places of various colors, and played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels. Who gave them the jewels? Who gave Israel the clothes? Our Heavenly Father. You also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread, which I gave you, fine flour and oil and honey, with which I fed you, you would offer them before them in a soothing aroma. So it happens, declares the Lord. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and you sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children, offered them up to idols, causing them to pass through the fire. Besides all your abominations and all your harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth. When you were naked, when I found you there on the side of the road, minutes from death, when I came and got you and collected you and laid my hands on you and said, Live, you have forgotten all of those things. And I, your husband, am yet faithful in my pledge to you. This is what the Lord has done. He has made this pledge to Israel. Flip over a page and look at verse 60. We'll just jump ahead. All of this, you, you can read all, all the material in between um, that as, as they chase other nations, and it goes on and on. While we come to verse 60, nevertheless, this is what the Lord says, nevertheless, I know what you've done. I know all of these things. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant, 
Thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. The Lord is faithful. Israel, the wife that he has taken, the wife that he has lavished all of these things upon, is unfaithful, but yet the Lord is faithful again and again and again. Now, let's illustrate this a little bit further from the book of Hosea. Hosea, you keep going through Ezekiel, Daniel, and then you get to Hosea. We often say that Hosea is the book of Hosea and Gomer. It's about Hosea and Gomer. No. It's about God's faithfulness. Again and again and again, it is about God's faithfulness. It is illustrated in how Hosea lives out his life and what he's called to do. But the story is God's faithfulness and man's unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness. Now we know that Hosea was called to go and marry a woman. And he was told ahead of time, she will not be faithful to you. And you will have children. And we, the first child is Hosea's. The, the second and third child we do not think are belong to Hosea, but are her result of her unfaithfulness. But God made Hosea live the tragedy of Israel's unfaithfulness by marrying a woman who would become a harlot. Look at verse 2. Hosea chapter 1. Well, we'll read verse 1. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. When you, when you get into the language, she wasn't, didn't start out as unfaithful, but she turned into that woman. Now, you remember when Israel was brought out in the Exodus, was, was brought out like this is God's possession. It wasn't until afterwards that she began to seek after other gods. So what we find is that at first Gomer is faithful to to Hosea, but then quickly deteriorates and seeks after the desires of others. So God is saying, before I give you the word of grace for my people, I'm going to give you the word of judgment. And not only am I going to give you that word, I'm going to make you live that word. It would have you know, how many of us wanted to be an Old Testament prophet? Gee, they had, they had such tough things happen to them, and they had to do these things. And, and imagine for yourself, here you have this woman you love, and you pour out your entire life into them, and they repeatedly seek after others. But you are called to be faithful. That's what God is to us. He is faithful again and again and again because that is the covenant that he makes with us. He makes with us. Gomer continues. You turn to chapter 2. Uh, chapter, turn over to chapter 3. That's what we'll read just a little bit. Gomer pursues other men. 
She says, I'll go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax and my oil, in hopes of finding excitement, material fulfillment, all these things. She seeks after these others. And what we find is that as she pursues what she thinks will make her happy, she actually gets unhappier as it goes on. As she pursues what she thinks will will build up her economic status, her economic status gets lower and lower and lower and lower. She does not realize that that these others cannot provide her with the necessities of life. And we get the image as we read through Hosea that Hosea follows her around as she does these things. And he goes out and spends his own money and buys food and buys the necessities of life and leaves them where Gomer can find them so that she is taken care of. And she finds them and she mistakenly thinks that the others that she is running around has provided these things for her. When it really has been Gomer or it really has been Hosea who has done these things in secret. And we chase after other gods and we go after them and we think, yeah, these things they are being provided for me. But no, no, not really. If we're being sustained, if we're being cared for in any way, it is because of our faithful God who does them. Hosea does not cease his care or his love for his wife, no matter what she does. The love of God is a pursuing love. It is a disciplining love, but it will pursue us and pursue us and pursue us. Here in chapter 3, let me read a little bit. This This might be the most beautiful chapter in Scripture. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be towards you. Again and again and again, Gomer had been unfaithful to the point where she reaches the bottom of the barrel. She owes money. She is now to be sold into slavery. Hosea goes down to the slave market, and you have to understand this in, in, in the cultural context in, context. in the slave market, the slaves would be put up on the block, they would be stripped of their clothes, and they would be sold to the highest bidder. Hosea goes down to the slave market, and there is his wife, the woman that he loves. She is stripped naked and is being sold as a slave, and he redeems her out of slavery. He doesn't even have enough cash to buy her. He he splits it between cash and barley, and he buys her back. He redeems her back out of slavery and takes her home, and she is his once again. This is the extent of the love that our Heavenly Father has for us. Hosea now owns Gomer. It is within his rights to kill her on the spot. Yet he does not. Because Hosea's love for Gomer is most clearly seen 
in God's love for us, in his love for the Old Testament people of Israel, and in Christ's love for us. Here we are, slaves to sin. He comes to the slave market and redeems us. And what is the price for our redemption? It was his life. It was his life. Hosea gathers her up. He takes her home, promising his love to her and reclaiming the love that is his from her. This is what Christ has done. Along comes Christ and bids his life for us, to ransom us from the fall. That's love. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what wondrous love is this? is illustrated so clearly in your word. In the Old Testament, you are the husband. Your people Israel, the wife. In the New Testament, it is Christ the groom and the church the bride. And here in this world, you have given us a picture of how these things should be, marriage as you intended it to be. It is so important that you equate it with idolatry when we are unfaithful. It is so important that, that, that we understand how you keep your covenant and you go to such great lengths to continue to demonstrate your love for us. How then shall we live in our marriage? How then should we treat the one whom you have given to us. How then should we pursue them and love them and be loved in return? It is a glorious picture of the grace you have given us and a physical demonstration of the type of love that you have for us. Fix this in our hearts, Heavenly Father that we might know such a wondrous love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.